All right, welcome. Welcome to everyone here and to those watching remotely. We're very pleased to have Dr. Green here as our first student-invited speaker for Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Dr. Green graduated from Yale University in 1977 with a Bachelor of Science and went on to receive his PhD in biology and immunology in 1981, also at Yale. Following postdoctoral work, Dr. Green accepted a faculty position at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and later became a member and head of the Division of Cellular Immunology at La Jolla Institute for Allergy and Immunology. In 2005, he became the chair of immunology of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. And as of 2016, he is the Cancer Center Program Co-Director for Cancer Cell Biology at St. Jude. His research focuses on the intersection of apoptosis mechanisms in cancer and immune cells. He has published extensively on the topic of cell death and many of its key molecular players, such as the anti-apoptotic protein MCL1 and the pro-death signal trail. Dr. Green has authored many reviews on apoptosis, necroptosis, and cell death in cancer, and is an ISI highly cited investigator. Recently, his lab published in an article in Nature demonstrating that localization of the transcription factor CMYK in dividing T cells determines the discrete function of the two daughter cells. For disclosure, Dr. Green does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And for CME credit, please use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. Dr. Green? Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, thanks for that really nice introduction, and thanks to whoever voted for me to do this. When there's colors in the trees and it's, the weather's warm, it's always like this here, right? I, I know that. I grew up not too far away, so uh, yeah, I know about that. Um, it, and it's really a pleasure uh, to get to come and tell you about a little bit of the stuff. Um, by the way, all those things that were listed that we worked on, none of those have to do with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, uh, what I wanted to do today was, um, this is kind of a fun story because it's a work in progress. The vast majority of it hasn't been published, may never be published if it's up to reviewers, I'm sure. And, um, and uh, it, it kind of takes you through a process. You know, what happens when you get results that don't really fit what you think they should mean and things like that. And um, Along the way, I will talk about a little of our published work, because that's how we put it into context. But I'll also introduce um, a, a novel pathway. And you don't have to be an immunologist to know any of this stuff. There's virtually no immunology in this talk, although a little bit. But it's baby immunology. I'm not going to go too far with that. Don't worry. Um, I know usually you say immunology, and half the audience runs out, right? But nowadays, not so much, because as cancer biologists, we know the immune system cures cancer. And so I always tell my friend Chuck Shear, who says, you immunologists, I can't understand what you're talking about, says, well, you're going to have to learn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, but uh, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to take what we could say is a, is a different perspective. Um, and uh, I just like that picture. You know, um, there's an emerging field of cancer metabolism. I know everybody here, is, in fact, we've already had some discussions this morning about cancer metabolism. And, and what's emerged from that, which is immunometabolism, and I'm very interested in that as well. Um, but there's something that's emerging on the edges of this field. And what's emerging is that not just, the study of metabolism is no longer just about 
what a cell eats or what it does with what it eats. It's starting to emerge that some of the metabolites, some of the products or some of the um, uh, initial substrates or the enzymes that are controlling these metabolic pathways have other jobs. They can actually act as signals. And I just pulled this out of a review and stuck a few more stuff on. We won't go over this, but these are just examples of where that's happened, where we're starting to understand that metabolites and, and metabolic pathways have functions distinct from what we've traditionally thought about. And I'm going to talk about that in the context of a really ancient metabolic pathway, and that's autophagy. The trouble with trying to talk, give a talk on autophagy is, unless it's an autophagy meeting where everybody works on it every day, is it is impossible to understand the process of autophagy. Um, it, as we know, autophagy was really delineated through studies in yeast, and as a consequence, the names of the genes have numbers or kind of nonsense abbreviations. And especially worse is when those same proteins were identified in mammalian cells, many of them had already been named. And so these other proteins get sort of stuck in there in the autophagic pathway. And so trying to figure out how this all works is really a mess. Um, and so since we don't have time to do an entire lecture just on the basic principles of autophagy, I'm going to super simplify it so that by in the next three minutes, you're all going to be experts. Some of you probably already are, but let's just talk about it. So the process of autophagy is really involved in creating a structure within the cell. That structure is a double membrane structure that captures cytosolic materials for degradation. This process is induced by starvation conditions uh, in the in the most basic form of autophagy. And under starvation, where you don't have nutrients, the cell will just grab cytosolic components and degrade them in, uh, through fusion with lysosomes to create sources of energy and building blocks so the cell can stay alive under starvation conditions. The signals that starvation generates are predominantly the loss of function of TORC1, the mTOR complex 1, and the activation of AMPK. And both of these converge on a set of proteins, which are a complex. And that complex functions as a serine kinase. Has a number of components, including the kinase itself, but that kinase doesn't work unless the other components are there. So I'm going to call that the serine kinase complex. When that becomes activated through the loss of torque one function and the activation of AMPK, either or, that serine kinase becomes active, phosphorylates targets, and what those targets are are basically another complex called the initiation complex. This one, the serine kinase is the pre-initiation complex. Now there's an initiation complex, and that functions as a PI3 kinase. It's not the PI3 kinase you know about in cancer biology or immunology or other whatever cells you like to study. Those are generally class 1 PI3 kinases. This is the only known class 3 PI3 kinase. It generates a different lipid, phosphoinositide. It generates PI3P, but that's not terribly important for this. Um, the kinase itself is part of this complex, but the other components are absolutely required for its function. And so again, it's a signaling complex that functions as a PI3 kinase. 
The generation of that special lipid, PI3P, now binds bridging molecules that will now recruit what is effectively a ligase pathway. It's just like, at a molecular level, this is just like the ubiquitin ligases. There's an E1, an E2, and a fairly complex E3. But um, at a molecular level, they work the same way. They take a small protein, like ubiquitin, but in this case, the small protein is a set of five different proteins, which collectively I'm just going to call LC3. And these small proteins are now transferred by the ligase reaction not onto a protein, as would happen in the ubiquitin pathway, but onto a lipid, phosphatidylethanolamine. So LC3, as a result of this reaction, LC3 becomes lipidated. And where that happens in canonical autophagy is at the endoplasmic reticulum. It's actually a subregion of the endoplasmic reticulum. And that most likely now engages... Um, um, contractile machinery that draws the endoplasmic reticulum membrane out, extrudes it, folds it over as a sheet that then fuses with itself through the action of LC3. It fuses and now becomes a double membrane structure. So the way autophagy works is basically to stick this anchor molecule onto the lipid, it draws that out, folds it over, and you get this double membrane structure. Uh, as it's forming, it's called a phagophore. When it's formed, it's called an uh, uh, autophagosome. That fuses with lysosomes, degrades the contents that have been captured, and now you have more sources of nutrients and energy. That's autophagy. And I'm going to keep coming back to the serine kinase complex components, the lipid kinase complex components, and the ligase pathway. Okay. And what we were starting to do a couple of years ago, and I'll introduce you to the person who came up with this idea, we were starting to get interested in the role of autophagy within the tumor microenvironment. Now, we're not the only ones to do this. There have been a few papers on autophagy in the tumor microenvironment, not so much in the tumor cell itself, but in the cells that are around the tumor, and suggestions that autophagy may help within the microenvironment may help to sustain the tumor, and therefore, if you could affect autophagy within the tumor microenvironment, you might impact on the growth of the tumor. So far, so good. And we were interested in one cell type, basically macrophages or myeloid cells uh, that are very important cells within that tumor microenvironment. Part of the reason that we were looking at this was because uh, it was known, and this is where the cell, little cell death bit comes in, um, it was known that within the tumor microenvironment, cancer cells eat dying tumor cells, and that polarizes the macrophages. Sorry, did I say? I meant macrophages eat dying tumor cells. I hope I said that. And that polarizes the, the macrophages to become what's kind of loosely called an M2 macrophage. These are macrophages that are predominantly involved in uh, tissue remodeling, wound healing, maybe promoting cancer growth, and actually suppressing the immune response to the cancer. Alternatively, macrophages, or monocytes, the immature macrophages, when stimulated with infectious agents or stimulated through their toll-like receptors in response to, say, bacteria, polarize in a different way. These become so-called M1 or inflammatory macrophages. These can cause tissue damage and may promote immune responses. All right? They're involved in host defense and damaged tissues. All right. 
And Larissa Diaz de Cunha, a postdoc in the lab who's actually just accepted a faculty position in Brazil. She's Brazilian, though she's going to stick around in the lab for another year uh, to work on this project. Um, started off with a really simple tumor model. This is like tumor 101. If you've never worked in a tumor model, this is the easiest model you can use in a mouse. It's a syngenetic tumor system. It's B16 melanoma in C57 black 6 mice. And all you do is you grow B16 melanoma cells in vitro. You inject a few into the tail vein. They colonize the lung. And a couple of weeks later, you can take the lungs out. Because the tumor is black, you can count the number of colonies and how much that tumor is grown. Simple model. By the way, I will talk about very simple models of tumors. We have some uh, autochthonous tumor models going and some more complicated <laughs> models going right now. But I want to just make a pitch for these really simple models. Um, five years ago, you couldn't really publish anything with these kinds of models. But then it turned out everything we do in terms of cancer immunotherapy and checkpoint therapy for cancers came out of these really simple models. So we're kind of back to them because they're useful. Um, and what Larissa did was she knocked out components of the autophagy pathway in the macrophages in these animals and did this very simple experiment. And what she noticed was that when she removed the uh, PI3 kinase itself or the E1, E2, or E3 of the uh, ligation pathway, tumors didn't grow as well. So that kind of confirmed the hypothesis. Very exciting for us. Right? And then she did one more experiment. This is the bane of the PI's existence, right? You guys all know this. Um, we're, we're running the lab. We're ready to write a paper. And then the, the researcher does another experiment. And it totally didn't work. She removed an absolutely essential component of the serine kinase complex, absolutely required for autophagy. And there was no effect at all. We know that the macrophages from these animals have no canonical autophagy. They don't uh, lipidate LC3 in response to starvation. And yet, we couldn't see the effect at all. And to Larissa's credit, she said, I can't publish this until we figure this out. Right? And by the way, she's also now taken out other components of the autophagy pathway. And those don't work either. So she had to ask. When is autophagy not autophagy? That's a tough one. But it turns out, and of course I wouldn't be telling you this story if we didn't have an idea. Seven, oh, ten years ago, ten years ago, we had described autophagy that's not autophagy. These are macrophages with fluorescent LC3. They, um, are eating yeast particles. Uh, it turns out any fungus will do this. Bacteria will do this. Um, anything that engages a toll-like receptor, anything that engages an FC receptor, or one other example that I'll show you in a minute, as the particles are engulfed, you can see that LC3 going to the membrane of the phagosome that's engulfing these particles. We know, and I'll show you in a minute, that the LC3 is lipidated on that single membrane. As a consequence, 
lysosomes more rapidly fuse to that phagosome and destroy the contents. So here the lysosomes are red, the yeast particles uh, blue, the LC3 again is green, it's coming around again. There it is, it's engulfed, you see the LC3 and you can see those lysosomes rapidly fusing with that phagosome. Uh, and as I'll show you in a moment, much more rapidly than you would see in the absence of this process. Ten years ago, we proposed to the autophagy community that this was a <coughs> autophagic-like process that was distinct from autophagy. We could not find any evidence for double membrane structures, phagophores or autophagosomes. Instead, the LC3 was directly lipidated on the phagosome membrane. The autophagy machinery responded like this. The postdoc who had done the work, Miguel, desperately tried to explain that he'd done everything he could to uh, show that it was autophagy, couldn't do it. I got involved in the discussion, here I come. <laughs> right. And I brought a somewhat different argument to the table. <laughs> right. And now 10 years later, uh, LC3-associated phagocytosis is accepted as a non-canonical function of the autophagic pathway. You know I just wanted to share you that moment. <laughs> okay. um, it's quite distinct. And again, without going into tremendous detail, I'll tell you some of the ways that the pathway is distinct. First of all, oh, and how am I not showing it? I may be out of sequence. Okay, never mind. I'll show you in a moment. Oh, it's even quitting on me. Okay. Sorry. See, that's because I was getting too ahead of myself. Um, here we go. Go back to... Oh, that's why. I put up the wrong talk. Okay. <laughs> here we go. All right. Well, anyway, we're back. Okay. See, I, I hadn't checked. That's why it was going so well. Um, view. All right. We're back. We're back in the right order now, hopefully. Okay. First of all, as I already mentioned, this serine kinase complex, all of the components of the serine kinase complex are absolutely required for canonical uh, autophagy. None of the components, and we've knocked them all out, are required for this LC3-associated phagocytosis, the lipidation of LC3 on the phagosome, and the rapid fusion with lysosomes. So each of those components are dispensable. You don't need the complex. The lipid kinase complex, again, absolutely required for canonical autophagy, also is present in LAP, but the components are different. Components of the uh, lipid, ki the lipid kinase is required, its cofactor is required, but other components that are absolutely required for canonical autophagy are completely dispensable for LC3-associated phagocytosis. And let me give you an example, though, of something we found that's required for LC3-associated phagocytosis, but dispensable for autophagy. Um, this is a validation blot. But uh, using proteomics, uh, we interrogated, and I'll again introduce the person who did this work in a bit, uh, we interrogated the um, proteins on the, on the laposome, on this phagosome that had engaged LC3-associated phagocytosis, and 
one protein really stood out. First of all, um, the top is the cofactor for the lipid kinase. The second one is the lipid kinase itself. The third one is another cofactor, which is controversial as to whether it's required for autophagy or not. Uh, the next one absolutely missing, and again confirmed with knockouts, is a component ap- of the lipid kinase complex absolutely required for um, PI3 kinase activity, but totally dispensable for LAP. And then we found this protein here, Rubicon which I'll come back to in a minute. And that one really attracted our attention. Uh, We saw the E1 ligase. We saw the lipidated LC3, just to draw your attention to it. But why were we interested in Rubicon? At that point, Rubicon, and this is about three or four years ago, um, at that point, Rubicon was only known as kind of a mild inhibitor of canonical autophagy. And yet, we're finding it present in abundance where PI3 kinase is active. At the time we found this, there was no Rubicon knockout, um, so we made one. And we actually started this the day Rudy Anish published his paper showing you could use CRISPR-Cas9 to knock genes out. Um, we inserted a stop codon uh, using that method. We started the day that paper came out, and six weeks later we had our mouse. We went nuts, right? And Of course, we've used that for everything now. We've made over 60 mouse lines, I believe, Um, not just for us, but for other people as well. And um, it's never, ever worked that well again. But but it got us going. I mean, it is, of course, a fantastic technique. I'll just show you one result with that. We take macrophages out of our knockout animals that are defective in uh, Rubicon, that don't express Rubicon. Um, if we starve those macrophages into a fax space assay for immobilization of LC3, which is a pretty good indicator, um, we saw increased LC3 lipidation uh, under starvation conditions consistent with what had been published. It's a mild inhibitor of autophagy. But when we gave zymosin uh, killed yeast particles to induce LC3-associated uh, phagocytosis, there was none at all. Rubicon's required. And in fact, we could go a step further. We can uh, purify these laposomes. We can put them into a PI3 kinase assay and just directly test PI3 kinase activity. If we remove the, uh, and these, again, this is induced by LAP. If we remove the uh, component of that pre-initiation complex, the the serine kinase, no effect. Uh, If we remove downstream components, no effect. But if we remove the PI3 kinase, its cofactor, or Rubicon, we lose that PI3 kinase activity. Just want to show you one kind of cool result, um, which is in process. This is by another postdoc, Emilio uh, Boada-Romero. Um, he's found, oh, again, interesting. I'm not showing you another result. Uh, he's actually found there are two complexes of uh, the PI3 kinase present on the phagosome. In the absence of Rubicon, he does recruit components, which another postdoc had described as well, does recruit components of the PI3 kinase complex, but they have no activity. In the presence of Rubicon, though, he also recruits them, and uh, they're fully active. I guess I wasn't showing you his other cool result. Finally, finally, uh, we see that all of the components of the ligase pathway, the E1, E2, and E3, are required for both, and they're the same. But interestingly, and we don't know what it is yet, uh, the bridge molecule that's responsible for recruiting 
the ligase pathway seems to be different. When we knock it out and lose canonical autophagy, uh, we still have LAP, but we don't know what that molecule is. One other thing. Oh, I am going to show you the experiment. Good, good, good. Uh, see, this is what happens when you drive three hours and then put a talk together. Um, one other thing that we've noticed about LAP is that it, uh, at least in response to um, uh, zymosin particles and, and fungi, uh, aspergillus as well, um, it requires NADPH oxidase. And the function of that seems to be the generation of reactive oxygen species, um, not so much lipid peroxides uh, at the membrane, but something else, and I'll show you a little bit about that, uh, as well as the lipid kinase for the generation of PI3P, and together those appear to recruit the ligase pathway based on our studies of knockouts. But here's the very cool experiment um, that uh, Emilio has done. He's made uh, biotinylated liposomes. So these are just pure lipid, and they either do or do not contain PI3P but he can trap them with streptavidin. And he dips those into extracts from cells that don't contain any Rubicon. So he's not, it's just PI3P uh, that he can pull down. When he does that, nothing happens. So the mock vesicles without PI3P don't do anything. The vesicles with PI3P really don't pull anything down. But if he adds hydrogen peroxide, which would also be generated by NADPH oxidase, now he pulls down the um, E3 and E1 ligase of um, the uh, LAP pathway. So that tells us probably our bridge molecule that we're looking for, we're going to be able to trap with this, and those proteomic experiments are going on. But that's not what I wanted to talk to you about. Jennifer Martinez. Uh, this is work Jennifer published last year, so I'll always tell you when something's been published. Um, Jennifer was interested in the, um, uh, another process uh, of where LC3 associated phagocytosis was going on. That is the clearance of dying cells. We'll get back to the cancer stuff in a, in a minute. Um, Jennifer now has her own lab at the uh, NIEHS, the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, in a new division of uh, inflammation research. And what I'm about to tell you about is well, probably why she got that. So what she noticed was, doesn't matter how a cell dies, we have lots of ways that we induce cell death, that corpse, when it's eaten by a macrophage, induces LC3-associated phagocytosis. <clears throat> And as a consequence, this, that corpse is cleared. So here in this experiment, uh, dead cells were added to a culture of macrophages. You can see that induction of LC3-associated phagocytosis, and the corpse, uh, the, the cargo is rapidly acidified, and within about an hour and a half or so, nothing's left of it. It's been completely degraded by the actions of the lysosomes. In the absence of LAP, though, the corpse persists and persists and persists and persists. <clears throat> Keep in mind what that looks like. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, in this particular experiment, all those dying cells were completely cleared from our culture of macrophages within about four hours. We couldn't see those labeled corpses anymore. But in the absence of LAP, they just persisted. They were all eaten, but the macrophages couldn't do anything with them. 
And as a consequence, the biology of the macrophage changes. Now, normally, when an apoptotic cell is eaten by a macrophage, that's immunologically silent. Um, to simplify this without going through all the genotypes, these are some of these genotypes remove LAP from the macrophages. Some of them remove canonical autophagy, but not LAP. So I've labeled that. Um, Looking at the production, for instance, of interleukin-1-beta, we have exactly the same results from interleukin-6 and other inflammatory mediators. In the absence of canonical autophagy or just in wild-type macrophages, they're eating a dead cell doesn't do anything, but in the absence of LAP, they produce these inflammatory mediators. And in contrast, when a macrophage eats a dying cell, it makes anti-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-10. And again, wild-type or autophagy-deficient cells do that. But in the absence of LAP, there's no production of interleukin-10 in response to the uptake of a dying cell. And when we really interrogate this in a lot more detail, uh, look, looking at gene expression, we see, and uh, again, I won't go over this in detail, we see that in the absence of LAP, genes that are indicative of inflammation, interferon-associated genes, um, uh, genes that would be induced by an infectious agent or LPS-engaging toll-like receptors, those genes are turned on preferentially, and the genes that would suppress immune responses are shut off. So we have a lot of genes that help us discriminate between canonical autophagy and LAP. I'm going to use this um, uh, uh, coloring scheme. Genes that are involved in both autophagy and LAP, genes that are required for autophagy but not required for LAP, and genes that are required for LAP and not autophagy. And we had all these mice in our colony, um, especially when you do immunology, but I would contend no matter what you're working on, you can't use... You can't use wild-type mice that you just bought from Jackson or Charles River as your control for the knockout animals you're maintaining in your colony. So I insist, at least in our lab, and of course it's a killer on the grants, but everything is littermate controlled. So that means we're always doing crosses where littermates will either have the gene or not have the gene, or have the Cree and not have the Cree. All right? And we had all these lines in our um, animal colony. And one day, Jennifer walked in to my office, and she said, you know, it's really weird. After about four months, I don't have to genotype the animals anymore. I can just look in the cage and tell which ones have defects in lap in the myeloid compartment. Because they're littler. These are growth curves. At four months, the animals are indistinguishable. But after that, the lap-deficient animals just didn't gain weight as fast. In fact, that's even true if we put them on a high-fat diet. In the, uh, the black is wild-type littermate controls, and the open is uh, lap-deficient within the myeloid compartment. Um, that's even true in Rubicon knockout versus wild-type, so it's not autophagy in the macrophages. And it's not true when we take out autophagy but don't take out lap. And for reasons we'll come to in a minute, 
I thought it would be interesting to look at this. We uh, collaborated with a group at UT Southwestern, Chinchun uh, Zhao, uh, uh, who has an array of 200 autoantigens. We took serum from our mice and sent them, and again, I won't go over this in tremendous detail, but wherever the genes, uh, sorry, the antibody reactivities are lighting up, these are the lap deficient animals. And a slightly closer examination reveals that these genes are, sorry, these, they're not genes, they're antigens. These targets for autoantibodies are indicative of the targets that you see in sera from human lupus patients. And indeed, when we look at the serum of these animals, Interleukin-6 is increasing in the circulation only in our lap-deficient animals, uh, an inflammatory cytokine. And in contrast, and this hadn't been known before, uh, in wild-type animals, interleukin-10 levels increase as the animals age, this anti-inflammatory cytokine. But in the lap-deficient animals, there's no anti-inflammatory cytokine in the circulation. As a consequence of the autoantibodies, there's immune complex deposition within the glomeruli of the kidneys. We see uh, immunoglobulin and activated C1Q, a complement component, within these kidneys. At this point, I went to our veterinary pathologist, really excited. Our animals might have lupus. Um, I went to our uh, veterinary pathologist, and I said, could you look in the kidneys and see if they have kidney disease similar to, to lupus uh, nephritis? And she came back and said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but no, they don't at all. Uh, and at that point, I was a little depressed. I was talking to my friend Andreas Linkerman. He is a kidney pathologist. Uh, and he said, with all due respect to your veterinary pathologist, you know, you've got to be an expert in kidney pathology. And I do this every day. Send me the samples. Code them. Jennifer just put numbers on them. She sent it. He was in the clinic at the ICU, and he said he was round the clock, but when he'd have an hour free, he'd read a few slides. And he sent us back the data in two days. Um, and here were the results. All of the animals that were lap deficient had a condition called endocapillary proliferative glomerulonephritis. A score of five, he said, would mean anybody could see it. Score of four means it was really obvious to him. And um, this is exactly the disease that lupus patients get. So does it have anything to do with dying cells? Well, we can take the young animals that don't show any sign of disease, inject them with uh, thymocytes that we've killed, just inject them a few times, and we see elevations of anti-nuclear antibody and anti-DNA antibody only in the lap-deficient animals, and they show evidence of tissue injury based on circulating levels of ALT. So why would we even think this is potentially interesting? Well, there's a number of GWAS studies that say that human lupus patients have an uh, increase in a polymorphism in the, a gene for the E3 ligase of autophagy. And so this has led to a lot of articles, not just these papers, but a lot of reviews, and you can kind of guess how the reviews go. 
They start off lupus as a terrible disease, and it is. It would be really good if we could cure it. Um, Part two, autophagy is a really interesting and ancient pathway. Here's a lot we know about autophagy. Part three, autophagy is somehow related to lupus. We have no idea why. And what we're starting to propose is that maybe it's not autophagy defects or changes in autophagy, but instead changes in LAP. And let me give you a quick summary, and then I'll tell you why I think that might be true. The uptake of dying or dead cells induces LC3-associated phagocytosis. I didn't tell you about TIM4, but we're not going to talk about that. Mice lacking macrophage lap but not autophagy produce inflammatory cytokines in response to dying cells. Mice lacking macrophage lap but not autophagy produce cytokines and chemokines as they age and show evidence of a lupus-like syndrome. Dying cells accelerate disease in animals lacking LC3-associated phagocytosis, and this GWAS result suggests roles for autophagy. But could it be lap? And here's why I think that the answer might be maybe. Well, maybe better than maybe. Uh, In the 1950s, a diagnostic for lupus was described. It's called an LE cell. In 1996, the American Rheumatological Society decided that you no longer needed to detect these cells in order to diagnose lupus, but there was no doubt that patients with lupus have these cells. In 2010, Martin Herman... Uh, in Tubigen showed that what an LE cell is, is it's a macrophage that has eaten a dead cell and is not degrading it. That's exactly what we see in lab deficiency. Okay, back to the cancer thing then. All right, so um, this was, this was um, the result that, that uh, Larissa had, that in the Deleting the serine kinase complex, there was no effect at all, but removing the lipid kinase for autophagy or the ligase pathway for autophagy produced this um, state where the, where the um, tumors didn't form colonies as well. So she did the same experiment in the absence of Rubicon and got the same result. It looks like it's LAP and not autophagy that's important here. Uh, you don't have to do this as that simple-minded uh, uh, lung colony model. These uh, tumors will grow. This is B16, yeah. These tumors will grow as flank tumors. Uh, again, if you grow them in the litter mate controls, the tumors grow. In the lap-deficient animals, they don't. But in the absence of the serine kinase complex, there's no difference between the wild type and the knockout. Um, we have the same results, not only in B16 melanoma, but also in Lewis lung carcinoma, that removing any component of the lap pathway produces this effect. And when we look at the macrophages in these tumors, the macrophages are showing signs of activation. They're expressing markers that are associated with the M1-type macrophages, the inflammatory macrophages, and producing more TNF-alpha and interleukin-1, inflammatory cytokines. We think we know why. When a dead cell is eaten by a macrophage, that induces the expression of the interleukin-4 receptor. And when interleukin-4 is present, that will drive the macrophages towards the wound-healing type M2 macrophages that suppress immune responses. When we take macrophages in vitro and feed them 
uh, dying cells. They do indeed elevate their IL-4 receptor. But in the absence of LAP, for instance, in the absence of Rubicon, this doesn't occur. And this is using different, cell, different ways of killing cells to produce the same effect. And indeed, when we look in the tumors from these animals, uh, these are the monocytes, these are the macrophages that are maturing within the tumor, um, decreasing levels. Uh, they're not elevating interleukin-4 receptor or other markers of these M2-like macrophages. This is cool, and this is in progress. Um, Single-cell uh, RNA-seq from the macrophages of these tumors. When we look at those, the ones in red are the uh, wild type. The ones in blue are the knockouts. They're clustering in different uh, clusters. Statistically, um, we see monocytes and macrophages in the wild type, and these macrophages have upregulation of a number of genes that are associated with these wound healing type macrophages. And when we look in the knockouts, we're finding macrophages and monocytes that are elevating genes that are associated with interferon responses. Now, there's a lot of interest in the interferon responses in driving anti-cancer immunity, and we'll get to that in a moment. Another feature of the macrophages from a tumor is that they'll suppress T cells. And there's a simple, simple way you can show that. You put T cells into culture and you label them with a dye that labels all the proteins within the cells. And then as the cells divide, the dye dilutes, the fluorescent signal dilutes. So the further you go this way in, in culture, the more the cells have divided. And if you add macrophages to them, you prevent that division. So it shifts to the right. right? If we do that by remove, if we remove the serine kinase complex, it's still, the suppression is still there. If we have a control for our um, knockout, the suppression is still there. But we lose that suppression when we remove LAP from these macrophages. And as a consequence, as a consequence sorry, T cells are more active in these tumors. CD4 T cells, in this case, we're seeing elevated amounts of interferon gamma. And it, uh, sorry, this is in <coughs> numbers of cells expressing interferon gamma. And the amount of interferon gamma is elevated in the T cells. The numbers of T cells aren't different. They're just more active. That's in Lewis lung carcinoma. Same results in B16. This is basically just showing the same results in um, CD8 T cells where we get the same effect. Oh, gosh. Ah, oh, and I put the last punchline thing in the other top. Oh, see, this is what happens. I should pay more attention. Where is it? Sorry, we're almost done. Oh, I took it out. Oh. Open recent. Because this is a result we just, we just got. All right, I'll just show you here. It's cool. Um, on the, on the left, too, are uh, T cells from the tumors of wild-type animals, of our wild-type litter-mate controls, looking for markers of T cell exhaustion. And they're quite strong. The T cells are exhausted in these T cells, uh, in these, in these uh, tumors. On the right are our LAP deficient. We see activated T cells, but they're not exhausted, just based on these markers. Okay, that's all I was going to say about that. But I was excited because we literally got the results today. 
Okay. And finally, are the T cells important? We think so. Simple experiment again. Larissa put, um, used lap deficient or lap sufficient animals. She, the tumors didn't grow in the lap deficient animals. They did grow, uh, the wild types, they did grow. Sorry, there. And then she depleted T cells. She injected antibodies to CD4 or CD8. The CD4 antibodies depleted CD4 positive T cells, not CD8. The CD8 antibodies depleted CD8 positive T cells, not CD4. And now the tumors grew just as well in the lap deficient animals as they did in the wild types. So, finally, at least for B16 and Lewis lung carcinoma, they grow more slowly or not at all in animals in which myeloid cells lack lap. We're doing five more tumor types as we speak. Um, the tumor-associated macrophages in lap-deficient animals may be skewed to M1, and the tumors in the lap-deficient animals show increased T-cell activity, maybe decreased uh, T-cell exhaustion. The inhibition of autophagy is really being pursued as an anti-tumor therapy, but maybe some of the effects are through immune activation by the, by the uh, inhibition of LAP in the microenvironment. And if so, again, that might be a very effective approach. But what we'd like to know is can we specifically target LAP to promote anti-cancer immunity? And the differences in that PI3 kinase complex may give us an opportunity. Inhibitors of the PI3 kinase complex for canonical autophagy don't inhibit LAP, um, which suggests that it may have distinct, and we know it has distinct components of that complex, maybe a distinct confirmation of that PI3 kinase that's druggable. We'll find out. So here's the model. As tumors grow, cells die. They're eaten by macrophages. In a wild-type situation, those drive these wound-healing-type macrophages that are suppressing immune responses and probably promoting the exhaustion of T-cells. In the absence of LAP, they become more inflammatory, tissue-damaging, and seem to be driving T-cell responses. We're looking for whether certain checkpoints, and we have predictions about that now, whether certain checkpoint blockades will synergize with the effects that we're seeing. We're also looking as to whether LAP is actually promoting the activation of antigen-specific T cells in these tumors, and the preliminary results suggest yes. So that's the story. These are the people who did the work. I mentioned Larissa Diaz-Tacuna as the driver of that cancer story. Uh, Jennifer Martinez, I mentioned in passing. Um, David, Charles, and John are helping us with a single cell analysis. Uh, we get a lot of our animals from Skip Virgin at um, uh, Wash U, who's also just been a great collaborator over the years. And Andreas Linkerman, I mentioned as well, our kidney pathologist who really heroically did that work. And with that, I would be happy to take your questions. Oh, I have one more of these. <laughs> We think it's, from what we can tell right now, it's the very first thing recruited to the membrane. 
So when we make Rubicon fluorescent or even just take a small region of Rubicon, we see that it's got affinity for certain phospholipids, not PI3P, but other phospholipids. And um, that are enriched in the phagosome. And we see it actually, um, there's something called the phagocytic cup. Even before the phagosome forms, it just has a little invagination. Rubicon is already there. We think it's binding to these enriched phospholipids. And in turn, that's dragging the PI3 kinase complex to that membrane. But for some reason, and we're doing a lot of work on this right now, the PI3 kinase doesn't become active until the phagosome seals. Uh, so we think there's a second event. We've got some candidates for what might be uh, the activating signal at that step. But it's fun biochemistry. So we think it's actually required to, to it's a unique PI3 kinase complex that's, um, that Rubicon's the backbone of. And it's necessary for that PI3 kinase activity. The tumor models in the lab-deficient mice, do you still see the development of autoimmunity? So um, I should mention that the autoimmune phenotype takes about a year to manifest. Okay. Um, so we think that in, these, uh, in the relatively short term that we would want to inhibit lab, it's not a massive risk, but actually, you know, all the checkpoint inhibitors produce autoimmune responses. So if we could target lab as well, and we actually have some surface molecules that I'm not allowed to talk about to, to target LAP. Um, we don't think it's going to be enough time to produce an autoimmune response that you can't manage for that time period of the treatment. But it's a, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so can you go back to kind of how important is LAP in antimicrobial immunity? I mean, I know the work with the aspergillus and the molds, you showed right. it was important. How important is it the bacterial and are they recognizing, especially some of these eukaryotic pathogens, as apitotic cells or corpses as potential? Yeah, it's a great question. To tell the truth, we're not a very good infectious disease lab, so that's going to be my out. We're collaborating with groups that are. So um, first, uh, Sarkis Masmanian uh, in a bacterial model, he studies B. fragilis. Um, uh, and the induction of regulatory T cells that inhibit immune responses. Uh, he says that that's LAP dependent. So he actually enhances anti-B fragilis responses in the absence of LAP. Um, that was published last year, or maybe earlier this year, or last year, I think. Um, uh, Hortnoy, um, yes. Um, is studying it in uh, Listeria. And, um, there's, and there are a number of papers now on Aspergillus uh, and a few other fungal pathogens uh, with respect to LAP. So it's kind of getting a life of its own. And since we're so completely useless in doing any kind of uh, infectious disease work, we're letting them do it and see what they decide. But we send our animals everywhere. Um, we don't have any. We never restrict uh, access to our animals. So if anybody wants to do something in, this, in these models, let me know, and we can get animals to you. Alan. I wasn't quite sure. Was your lactic-fishing mice macrophage-specific, or was it the whole uh, In the case of Rubicon, it's through the whole mouse. We now have a flox Rubicon, so we're doing that. Um, all the others are um, 
just in myeloid compartment. So we use Lysemcre, which hits not only macrophages, but macrophages, dendritic cells, and neutrophils. Right. My question is, what does it do in Yeah, we don't know. Um, yeah, we're, we're doing some of the crosses to look specifically in those compartments. There, we also have a Cree that we've been crossing that will uh, is more penetrant specifically in macrophages, but it's too early. I mean, these things, as you know, they just take forever. And Lysem was the one we had first, so we most of our animals have that. But you were knockout, perfectly viable. Perfectly viable. Yep, uh, they do get this lupus phenotype as they get old. Um, but they're actually, they survive. They're, they're okay. Yeah. We've never actually done, we've never aged them like beyond a year. Um, I just can't afford it. But um, to see if they get much worse, but that's. Um, we're actually, just for fun, if anybody's interested in this area, we've been looking a lot at amyloid clearance in the brain by microglia. And again, we see that uh, beta amyloid induces LAP in microglia. And when we knock LAP out, the amyloid deposition is absolutely massive. And very preliminarily, we're seeing, and this is in a um, so-called FAD model with a mutant um, beta amyloid, uh, A-beta protein. Um, we're seeing phospho-tau, maybe in these brains. It's really early days, but um, we think LAP may have relevance in a lot of different um, pathological situations. So we'll see. Kind of intriguing. Um, yes? Have you ever tried to make antibody against Yeah, so um, no. Um, uh, we have one surface molecule that seems to be required. It sort of was up there. Um, we have a surface molecule that seems to be required for LAP in many macrophages in response to dying cells, but not to other signals. We don't know what the initiating signal is. When um, We know LAP can be TLR-dependent, toll-like receptor-dependent, FC-receptor-dependent. We don't know what everything has in common. But if we think if we target that cell surface molecule for the uptake of dying cells will get the same effect. In fact, we have data that says we do. I just was told to take it out of the talk. I don't care. I'll talk about it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, guys.